0: Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Prior to the uh, Super Bowl, the U.S. president gave an interview covering a variety of topics, uh, including he wants to keep troops in Iraq to watch Iran. Uh, Iraq's not happy about that. And he doesn't have to agree with uh, everything his, chiefs, his intelligence chiefs say. Uh, I guess last year with NBC didn't do this, uh, didn't want to, uh, I guess, accused NBC of not being fair and then when does, doesn't necessarily take questions, uh, did this time with CBS. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Well, good afternoon, Scott. Uh, your thoughts on the president uh, doing this before Super Bowl? I guess it's a tradition that, that lots of presidents have done, although that being said, he's got a State of the Union coming up. So uh, your thoughts on what he had to say?
1: His demeanor was calm and and uh, not vituperative in terms of using demeaning names. He seemed to be uh, laying out a case that he's protecting America in a variety of ways. He was questioned by a a very able interviewer, a very experienced interviewer, and uh, he had a lot to say. The problem is that a lot of what he said was contradictory to um, some apparent facts, but it also raised serious issues about his relationship with his own intelligence community But far more importantly, and this has been, I think, kind of missed in the fun and games of Donald Trump saying things that are demonstrably or you can easily say aren't the case, is that we're talking about some of the most serious issues on Earth, the relationship of America to great powers, and uh, there's a lot of nuclear stuff underneath it all.
0: Uh, She asked uh, uh, about the uh, comments that he had made last week in regard to uh, contradicting points that his security officials had made, whether it was on ISIS or North Korea or iran and such and and then he brought up the point hey i i don't have to agree with these people and then he brought up uh george w and the whole saddam hussein thing about him having nuclear weapons and 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 basically said guess what those intel people didn't know what the hell they were doing and they got us tied up in a war that we should have never been in how does that resonate
1: it certainly is a valid comment it's not unique to this interview the um Sorry, I've got a buzz here. The um, possibility exists that if they made a mistake then or an error then that, you know, everything he just got told, uh, that the Congress just got told also is factually not correct. And he he knows a lot of things that they don't. That's his position. The possibility that the combined information can lead the president of the United States to take action in a direction Proves to be false. That's that's absolutely uh, a valid uh, comment, and it got us into the the mess that we're into now in terms of Iraq, and that takes us to his comment about, well, we you know we we've got this. He he flew at Christmas time, you'll remember, uh, unannounced to an Iraqi uh, base, an American base in Iraq. Not just an American base, incidentally. The U.K. has been using it and others in the broad coalition against ISIS. So he was taken there. He was really impressed. And if you watch the interview, one of the things he kept saying over and over again, you know, this costs us a lot of money. And he seemed Mm -hmm. preoccupied all through the interview with various aspects of, of things that, you know, these wars cost money. Stationing troops cost money. That base, that cost us a lot of money, but we might as well use it And we might as well use it for keeping an eye on Iran. And as you uh, indicated in your opening comments, Iraq was not pleased by saying, you know, we're going to use that base for purposes other than which we agreed. And what they agreed was that it was used for counterterrorism, not for uh, spying on Iran.
0: (laughs) Uh, you, the the example he gave of George B- uh, W and, and right. Colin Powell and back those days, as you said, it's a valid point, but does that, suffi- does that suffice? Can you just keep saying that over and over again? I mean, do you ever believe anyone? Where does he get his info from to contradict theirs?
1: Yes, and she pressed him on that a bit. She, as I said, a good interviewer. If you don't agree with them, well, what, what are you basing <laughs> your conclusions on? Mm-hmm. And he just said, I know a lot of things. So I mean, he said this has been a standing position for him. I know more than the generals, he said, in terms of uh, what to do about fighting ISIS. So the the apparent contradictions, are, as I say, are kind of the fun and games of watching the circus in in Washington and watching an American president be caught up in um, statements that can be shown the next day not to be the case. He said the next day, I've been briefed, and we're all on the same page. And they said, they, meaning the intelligence community, said it was fake news. There's no evidence that they said that.
0: How would this have been received? Uh, considering where he is now in his political career, uh, the shutdown looming, uh, a second shutdown looming, uh, how is this received?
1: Um, is he a lame duck president? He is perceived if you follow the logic of what he said calmly and in a presidential way, not in a, not in a Twitter feed kind of a spat, if you follow that, and if that is followed by the people who have voted for him in the past, no, he's not a lame duck president at all. He's got a base that says, look, he's protecting us. He's keeping us safe. He's watching out for our money. Uh, he says he wants to bring our people home. Our troops have been fighting too long overseas. He said he wanted them out, and now he's talking about bringing them out. Incidentally, as a footnote, apparently the troops that are being pulled out of out of um, Syria are going to that base. They're not coming home. They're going to that base, apparently, in in Iraq. But in any event, in terms of him being a lame duck, it's not going to be based on the kind of thing that we saw in that interview.
0: Uh, We had an interesting discussion uh, a few segments ago in regard to an an article in the Globe and Mail about uh, Asia's economy and how it is growing and... Uh, very much talked about, you know, the 19th century, it was Europe's yeah. a UK, 20th century, North America, 21st century, it's going to be all Asia. How does this conflict? And I mean, you know, it's like watching a tsunami come in. I mean, these things are certainly predictable. Uh, how does he move forward constantly pounding the make America great again mantra with this? Uh, you know, obvious uh, end game that's that's going to happen here. I mean, we yes. we can't go backwards here.
1: Well, if if the announcements repeatedly are we meaning America, we do not want to be the world leaders. We do not, and he mentioned this in his interview. We do not want to be the policeman of the world. We do not want, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we are we want to withdraw, and, cre- and this is from minor to major. We want to create a vacuum into which other powers can move, and that's certainly. Uh, the powers in Asia, but he also was talking very seriously about his relationships with China. Yeah, he said, "I've got a great relationship in the same interview with uh, Xi Jinping, and with uh, and with the young leader of North Korea, and also with uh, Vladimir Putin. And because of those great relationships, I can look after America's interest." The story in the Globe and the story you've been following about the rise of Asia is one of the great stories of our era we are not covering it you can say you can suggest that donald trump by taking on china in this trade spat uh is in fact trying for the very first time to put some kind of a containment around china trying to push back against their rise but it's couched in such a interesting way about this is about trade and i'm going to put sanctions on them but this is really in some ways a battle for the future uh technological prowess of of china which indeed they everybody else is saying they got it by stealing it uh, but nevertheless they've got this uh, technological edge so really this is perhaps a battle for the future of china uh, of the world uh, china's rise is what and it's not just china that story in the globe
0: yeah i mean it's all of asia
1: yes and you know India's waiting its turn yeah. to make it stake its claim uh, they've been launching our satellites. I mean, they, really, they are an emerging power. So how
0: is Donald Trump going to react when North America is playing second fiddle to Asia and they are now the world power? Now, but, They are now, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, the new world of today. In
1: terms of aspirations, the first thing he did as president almost was to pull America out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership which was this big trade deal, but it was primarily, and it was, this, America announced this on their web page on the TPP, this is a geopolitical act. If this is meant to give the states around the emerging China a trade opportunity, an alliance opportunity uh, to band together with America's leader, under America's leadership, and he, he canned that about his first act, that was a green light to, to China saying go. And it was a notice to all of the states in the region around China to say, well, we've just been thrown under the bus. We've been told to look after our own Mm interests, and America is not going to be there for us. So we had better start coming to terms with emerging China. That was extremely damaging, and Japan's successful resurrection uh, of that TPP, and Canada is now part of it, is kind of a a retrograde, a, a, a downstream effort to recreate what was already potentially in place so how america handles the rise of other powers and that certainly includes china is the biggest story of our era
0: after uh asian dominance what does that leave for north america what is their future what becomes america's north america's role once losing that that position
1: that includes us of course yeah uh I think the word dominance is premature, it's, it's aspirational. Asia is certainly rising. I, I, this happens to be my field, Scott. I gave many, many, many mm-hmm. speeches long ago saying Asia's getting organized. Are we getting organized? Asia's on the rise. Get ready for it. Are we prepared to deal with an emerging Asia? Are we investing in the languages and in the knowledge of culture? And also, of course, so the economic side. So this is, I've been beating that drum for a long, long time. Asia is back what are we going to do about it? It's not necessarily, you know, submerging us and making us a subordinate state, but there is reason to be concerned that Xi Jinping is increasingly seeing himself as uh, basically a Confucian emperor, not as a leader of an emerging state that requires a lot of care and guidance in how it handles itself. Uh, the, The... that's one of the stories of the last little while: is that China has changed internally how it is seeing right. itself, and the, re- the the role of the leader. He's now changed the constitution that they have, that he can be leader for life. This increasingly centralized and authoritarian tendencies of the leader himself is one of the stories. Back to what we were just talking about. Uh, this press interview and uh, all that one of the stories again underneath it that's so important is that he was talking about iran and he was talking about how he's he tore up this this deal Mm -hmm. and the story in the news is that the intelligence chief has just said actually iran is still keeping to the technical to the technical side of that treaty that is they are still not running to be a nuclear power and i was very, you know ambivalent on that treaty from its signing on the one hand i thought it was great that an, a state that was clearly galloping toward becoming a nuclear power and it's not an average state it's it has as they're now saying malign intentions and influence but there was nothing in that treaty about you know curbing those malign actions iran has just shipped something like 30 tons of yellow cakes that's that's uranium ore that they have mined internally to Isfahan, to a plant that has been idle for nine years. Now, they're permitted to do that under this treaty because you can enrich that up to a certain level and stay within the treaty. But at the same time, that plant can then, if they so wish, if America says you're no long, you, no Iran, is no longer constrained by, by treaty obligations, and then the inspectors can be kicked out, they can then use, uh, they have the beginnings of the, the dash toward a nuclear weapon. I find that very concerning.
0: Uh, In this change of world order that is coming over the course of this century, obviously when uh, America held that position, uh, democracy, relatively transparent, the fact that this next world order is still governed by the communist party of China. Now there's still other countries within Asia that they're going to have to tend to as well. But how will that change the worldview moving forward with instead of having what we know is, you know, a democracy as, as were as a world power and, and, and superpower as opposed to, uh, you know, China, which does not have that.
1: There's a lot of, um, a lot of research and, uh, conferences I go to, and that's, that's dealing with that precise issue. The, the idea that China is inevitably going to continue its current rise is drawn into question. That is, there are people who say this this is not inevitable, that China, as we see it today, is going to just move from strength to strength to strength. They have a lot of, as they, in their old days, of the, the vocabulary they might have used, they have a lot of internal contradictions to their own rise to... Uh, to dominance, the, the internal stresses and strains in a system that is not democratic and can't handle them. There's no escape valves for for pressures. So just continuing to suppress them, uh, it's not inevitable that this will this state, Particularly under a leader whose whose aspirations to be uh, uh, increasingly authoritarian. In a state which is, you know, the people there are, all, they make the cell phones which connect them to the world. Uh, so the, the, all the students that come, come back home are saying, wait, we're an emerging middle class, and we aren't, why, why do we have to put up with authoritarianism? So as long as this state, this is my own opinion, hmm. can deliver the goods, that is, as long as it continue to give the economic prosperity, and, and it's a benefit, you would have to give them full credit Millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. Yeah. And the technological prowess and all, they're, they're, it's, it's quite something to, to behold. But the day they can't deliver the goods as an as a authoritarian, single-party state with uh, a leader who says, I, I know best for everybody, the minute they can't deliver the goods, that system will come under great stress. And right now there's some signs that, in fact, that system is faltering as they try to transition from being a uh, one kind of an economy to another kind of an economy. And meanwhile, the world is saying, oh, my God, look, suddenly we aren't. The- <laughs> China's been the driver of global mm. economic growth, and now they're faltering. So it's a very complicated situation. There's also still Japan, who's number three economy in the world. Uh, they are democratic. There's South Korea. They have democracy. Taiwan has democracy. Uh, Hong Kong had and still has some and would like more. So there are models of Asians around China who can progress to great economic and political success without being a communist single-party state. Those models are available to Chinese uh, citizens as well.
0: So China will have as much of a challenge with other Asian countries, such as India, as they all expand, as they will with North America.
1: It's certainly a different kind of geopolitical dynamic, and yes, indeed, uh, India. Uh, one of the things I, I watch—I'm I, a trained Indianist, so to speak. The uh, India, of course, sees itself as as a rightful leader in the world, and it is it. Whatever the um, friendly comments we now see between China and India, and we do, and I think that's very important. This is a, an inherent and incipient competition, which both China and India see for the future leadership of the region.
0: Will that help keep China in check?
1: We'll have to see how it all works out. China has its internal issues. India has its internal issues. And America has by no means gone away. Uh, the West has by no means gone away. One of my concerns is, has been that American leadership says not only do we not want to be world leaders, We think that it's a great idea that Europe is weaker, and that NATO is obsolete. So this is coming out of the Trump administration. So if you weaken more and more of the, of the uh, cohesiveness of the institutions which have led to the prosperity and relative peace of the last seventy years, as those get more and more weakened, and as China rises, and as India and other others rise, you know also Brazil is waiting its turn and so forth. So. As all of this happens, we are entering into a totally different geopolitical world. You and I are speaking as the Lima Group is meeting in Ottawa, which is dealing with Venezuela, but also what it's dealing with is the role of multilateralism and the Canadian role in multilateralism in a rules-based order as the world shifts.
0: Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Always fascinating, Elliot. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Anytime. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on 900 CHML.